0: Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Mags with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise, informative update. It's Wednesday, the 17th of January. Coming up, the high cost of the Transnet coal line collision. The high school year starts plagued by logistics problems. Parents of pupils being warned about the dangers of social media abuse. Another high-profile DA member quits and why Apple has upended Amazon's top global brand ranking. Today, the industry organization, the Road Freight Association, says the collision of two coal trains on the Richards Bay ore line at the weekend is underscoring the vulnerability of the multi ore line owing to the inherent risks of outdated manual systems as well as poor operational control. From the RFA, Chief Executive Officer Gavin Kelly leads our program today. Gavin, first of all, as a result of this collision, how many more trucks are on the road?
1: Uh, Good afternoon, Jeremy. Good afternoon to your listeners. And may I take two seconds to wish you all a a fantastic 2024 with all the challenges that are coming. Thank you. Well, Jeremy, we know that when one of these large coal trains, and this is what we're really talking about here, is is taken off the rails, that there's easily up to 60 more vehicles, more trucks on the road that come along. And if if those rails are kept out of order, and a train goes along those rails probably at least three times a day, we're going to start looking at 180 to 200 trucks that are going to be needed to take what was going along on that train. And those are just very, very rough figures. Mm. It depends really on what sort of ore and how often those trains are actually running.
0: And Gavin, reading your very blunt statement, it seems to me that you're saying this was an accident that was almost waiting to happen.
1: Well, we've we've got very little report in terms of exactly what happened. And yes, once again, we know that there are some outdated processes that translate users. For example, the signaling systems evidently are still all manual. Uh, There's also a number of areas along the line, a specific area in the coal line where it's a single track. So your risks are still huge in terms of when something goes wrong, the whole line is brought to a stop. Now, that needs to be resolved at some stage sooner than later. Otherwise, we're going to continually have these sorts of hiccups and delays.
0: As far as those delays are concerned, and I guess as well added cost, uh, there's a detrimental effect there right across the value chain.
1: Well, yes, they will be, Jeremy. I mean, first of all, we're going to be spending a lot more on diesel. And uh, even though diesel has gone down a couple of times over the last couple of months, it is still an expensive commodity. We use the roads. There is a fair amount of road wear. That means maintenance will have to be uh, looked at again and and probably more maintenance done. And then, of course, there's all the wear and tear on the vehicles itself. So it adds in those costs into the value logistics chain. It makes that ton of coal that much more expensive in the open market. And this is what we've been saying for for a fair amount of the last part of the decade, is that we are not competing trucks against trains in South Africa. We are competing South African coal with Australian coal or Indian coal or whoever it may be. And that's really where the big loss is.
0: As far as the investigation is concerned, and notwithstanding your comments, that we still know very little about what actually happened, which is quite extraordinary in itself. What do you think the immediate priorities of this investigation need to be?
1: Well, as always, Jeremy, you need to find out what was the root cause, not not what the symptoms were. So now we've got a couple of, you know, railway wagons lying around, and we're going to fix the railway line itself. We've got to find out what caused this. And there are some various interesting statements. One of them coming out from from some sources of media is that it was a a load shedding uh, issue. Now, how that contributed I'm not quite sure but that's what we've got to do we've got to find out why it happened and then more importantly how do we prevent that from happening again and and if it's load shedding of course we all know (laughs) what Mm. we need to do in terms of that but if it's something else if it's if it's weak rail lines or there are bent railway lines then is the process of checking and I'm just using that as an example please is the process of of checking those lines on a regular basis in place so it's finding out what went wrong fixing it of course but how do we prevent it from happening again
0: gavin kelly in terms of keeping the supply chain supplied i guess how difficult at this point will it be to switch from rail to truck to ensure that there is uh, seamless delivery
1: well, once again, that's not a tremendously difficult thing to do because you can have the trucks arriving at the point of dispatch, so where the mines are, that is is not too difficult. But the problem is, and this is why we've got such queues at the port at Richards Bay, is because Richards Bay Coal Terminal, as it's commonly called, was developed to receive the coal and the ores by train. It's got a dedicated system in the port to offload those trains it's quite a very ingenious process so you can do a whole lot of train wagons at one go goes onto a conveyor belt and we've heard that's still a problem and from there onto the ships quite quickly with trucks you need to find a place to offload because the trucks cannot get on to the conveyor belt or into that area. It's not built for them. It's built for trains. They will very quickly destroy whatever railway line is there because you would have to drive over them. So the challenge really is offloading the coal. And that is what has given rise to these huge queues of trucks outside the port of Richards Bay because they cannot get in easily offload the coal into a system that gets it onto the ship quickly and out again. So it's whilst it's easy to load the trucks at the mine if we use that example, it's not so easy to offload them in an efficient manner at the port itself.
0: Gavin Kelly, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Moneyweb at midday. The school year starts today and all indications are suggesting it's going to be a tough one. Many Gauteng parents have been queuing outside district offices for placement for their children. There have been problems with the supply of learning materials in KwaZulu-Natal and in the Western Cape. Officials there are trying to process hundreds of applications. Elijah Mtlanga speaks for the Department of Basic Education and joins us now. And first up, it seems there are logistics issues across multiple fronts. How are you assessing it on day
2: one? Jeremy, you're correct. Those challenges are real, but uh, we are not surprised by them. We picked up already late last year that there were going to be these challenges. There were some reported delays regarding the procurement of uh, material in KwaZulu-Natal. The Department of Basic Education communicated with the Provincial Education Department. They needed to move with speed to resolve this one. We saw the Department of Education in Guazul-Natal last week issuing a notice to schools that the department would send money directly to schools for them to be able to buy what's required Mm. so that uh, learning and uh, teaching can commence in earnest on day one today. We hope that is happening. We know it could take a few days, but we've given them at least the first 10 days to resolve all those matters. Same applies to the issues of admissions. The MEC was looking into this matter late last year and he he issued a statement to parents that they would be assisted. And it is reported today that uh, a large majority of them have been assisted. Those that are still waiting should go to the district offices for assistance. Yeah, Western Cape is going through the same issue as well with place learners uh, still uh, seeking spaces in in the schools, but that too is being addressed. The MEC there has indicated that one of the issues they're trying to resolve is making sure that they accommodate all the learners that are descending on the province, so they are building schools and that's on a medium to long term, but immediately they're providing mobile classrooms to assist.
0: It does beg the question why year in and year out the application process remains such a big problem in some provinces.
2: Jeremy, I mean, we have a huge number of people who come into the high-demand provinces, like uh, KZN with people from Eastern Cape, in the eastern part of the Eastern Cape coming to KZN to Devon in particular, and others going to the Western Cape, and the rest coming to Gauteng. So the urban areas are always overcrowded as a result as in our schools. The difficulty is that you don't know how many people are going to suddenly appear. You go to the Northern Cape, they say the same thing in Kimberley. They're talking about 20,000 people who suddenly appeared from nowhere without prior notice. Mm. So even if you had done your work to plan based on the admission process that commences early in the year, in March, you collect your numbers, finalise them, but then you'll be surprised by a large number of people that you didn't know they were coming. That is what makes the job very difficult. The surprise factor is concerning, though. Does that not indicate poor forecasting? You could focus 2% and then you've got 12%. It becomes a big problem. When you procure, you have a little bit more, but you don't know how much more to get as reserves. So it's a problem. But at the end of it, it's not an education issue. It's it's an economic issue where people are losing jobs, then moving from one place to another. That's the first part. The second part is that we have a large number as well of people who are coming from outside South Africa coming to the country mainly the cities which is where their family members are residing and then going to demand spaces for their children in those places we know this because we ask people where they come from for reports and you can see clearly that it is people who were not in the country a year ago
0: the reality in those high demand provinces is that we simply don't
2: have enough schools to meet those growing needs do we We don't have enough schools but we also don't have enough land zoned for education because most of the land that is there that you see you think it's abandoned it belongs to some private person somewhere if you want to procure it it will take you time because there will be negotiations while you're busy discussing time is moving and some families somewhere feel that You are being unjust to them because their child is learning in a mobile classroom while others are in a proper structure. And then you get blamed for not doing enough, whereas the resources, all of them, whether it's financial or otherwise, they are uh, in short supply. So that's where we are. The demand is higher than what we can handle.
0: You mentioned the difficult economic situation that many parents find themselves in. In fact, the country finds itself in right now. What Mm. thinking does the department have around handling the the issue of the declining ability of financially constrained parents to pay school fees? Again, you'll concede it will be more difficult this, this year than probably in previous ones
2: yeah i think in so far as uh, school fees are concerned there i don't anticipate that there will be a big problem because most of our schools uh, like more than 80 percent of our schools fees are not paid where fees are paid there are concessions given to parents uh, not to pay fees but contribute a certain amount no matter how small so that you demonstrate commitment to your child being in that fee paying school even though you are not paying We assist parents in every way that we can. We feed their children, we transport their children. So the pro-poor focus that the government has placed on education is assisting. Uh, Even when the minister announces the results tomorrow evening, you are going to see that children from poor backgrounds benefit a lot from the pro-poor policies of the state and the assistance that they receive, right from relieving the parents from paying fees to feeding the children and giving them free books, all of those are able to assist children to stay in the system and uh, finish at metric level with with a pass which then gives them an opportunity to explore other things. So we understand and acknowledge that there will be challenges Uh, But we are doing something to address those.
0: I'll need a quick answer to this one. Ahead of the announcement of the matric results tomorrow, Umalusi is concerned over the number of pupils caught cheating in last year's matric exams. What's the problem?
2: The problem could be in the schools where people are not teaching. When they see the question paper, they panic and then they try to assist their children. Group coping cannot happen without assistance from a person who believes they have better knowledge of what you are tackling in an exam situation thank you very much
0: all right so as the school year begins in south africa parents educators and students are or at least should be increasingly aware of the digital world's influence on young minds and i want to briefly explore the dangers of social media as the school year starts And to help us navigate through that is well-known media lawyer Emma Sadler. Emma, first of all, all, as, as I'm talking to you, I also have my Facebook page open and I'm seeing screeds of pictures that proud parents have posted of their children. Are there risks attached to that?
3: Well, it's a conversation that happens at this time of the year every year. And yes, there are risks. I think there's a lot of scaremongering that goes around. And I think that um, you do get the people who say that, oh, you know, if you post pictures of your children, they're definitely going to get kidnapped. Um, You know, I think that it's all really just turns on becoming more and more aware about the digital world, where our content lands up and, and what happens to it.
0: Why? after so many years, are we still having this conversation? Where is the deficiency when it comes to awareness?
3: Mm. So I think that, you know, the, the old school reasoning is to be very aware about your child's real world safety. Um, you know, the idea that if you are sharing which, child, which school your child goes to, the name of your child, that a stranger could arrive and say, I'm here to collect this person and your, your mum sent me. Um, you know, there are those real-world dangers. I do think that they're often overstated. But, you know, Jeremy, for me, the most interesting thing and the big change from where I've spoken about this issue in previous years is the emergence of AI technology, the emergence of deep fakes, the idea that you can cause extraordinary harm to somebody as soon as you've got just a photograph of them. So as soon as I've got a picture of a child, I can use that child to Photoshop that face onto um, as some uh, a different body. I could put it on some dodgy website. It could land up in the, in the dark web. You know, we're seeing a lot more what I call image-based violence. And often that is targeted at children. You know, where it's a, another child causing the harm, that happens a little bit later, sort of from about 11, 12, 13 years old, we see kids using images to bully each other, turning them into memes, turning them into stickers, turning them into deep fake pornography. Um, but I think that at this age, um, the, the real concern still turns on uh, safety issues. Mm. And I think I just revert to my my usual parish, what I call sharenting advice, which is I strongly recommend that if you're gonna share pictures of your children, do it on private networks. Um, and a, a network isn't private if you've got lots and lots of followers. Um, So be cautious about who you've got following you. Hide identifying information as far as possible. You know, I certainly wouldn't put pictures of my child's passport uh, uh, or or birth certificate on social media because identity theft is real. I do think that both parents should agree, Um, you know, so particularly where there's been, for example, an acrimonious divorce and one parent wants their child to have no digital footprint and the other parent wants their child to be posing with them in their profile pictures on dating websites. I do think that there should be agreement on that because I do think it's quite a serious decision that affects the child. Um, And then I think as your child gets older, ask them. Um, But there is still a way, way, I think, of sharing the joy and that pride that you talked about in the introduction with maybe blurring some of the identifying information and sometimes even blurring their faces.
0: And Emma, from a legal standpoint, then, are there sufficient protections in place in South Africa to safeguard children from the risks that you've just outlined?
3: No, I mean in short, as much as there is, the law is playing catch up, and we're we're getting more and more legislation to combat the kinds of online harms that we're seeing. The truth is that our policing is just not there yet. Our policing, our investigations, our prosecution—it's very rare um, that that whole system works in conjunction and seamlessly to benefit um, a victim. So, in general, I would say. Um, you know, prevention is better than cure. Um, And also once that content is out there, you know, once that your child has become the victim of image based violence, and that content is all over the internet, it's very difficult to undo that harm. Um, So as I say, prevention is better than cure private accounts, um, and just becoming aware about what your child, your your child's digital footprint that they're going to inherit. I always default to the billboard test. So my question to everybody out there, sharing pictures of that, children today, would they put that same picture of their child that they've posted on social media on a huge billboard next to the M1 highway? Next to their name, their face, the name of the school they go to. If they'd put all that information out there, then, then post it, you know, then, then I'm happy. But just appreciate how public the internet is, how permanent it is, um, and that, that that is something that your child is going to inherit um, before they have the um, capacity to decide for themselves what kind of digital footprint they want. So certainly no embarrassing content, no shaming content, no naked pictures, um, and just a, a healthy dose of common sense.
0: We all have been warned. Emma Sadler, thank you very much. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. All right, let's switch from the education year now to party politics. And Kume Ramulifo has resigned from the Democratic Alliance to join the Rise Mzanzi Party. Here's a bit of background for you. Last year, he failed in his bid to beat Solim Simanga for the position of DA leader in Gauteng. He joins us now. And first up then, is this simply a case of sour grapes? You have been beaten to the role of provincial leader as well as Mm -hmm. premier.
4: Not really. I mean, if I have to consider that, I'll even have gone to a party which was giving me the offer of being a premier candidate. But I said, for me, it's not all about that. In the DA, I even lost a number of positions before in my tenure, but it was not only about position. It's also about building a new majority, which when I joined the party 25 years ago, I said the DA's values and principles are what I subscribe to. And I want to be part of this journey to build new majority. And when I joined at the time, the DA didn't even have student organizations Mm. and tertiary institution. And I started doing that as we speak now. You have got, you know, DASO, which contests even in, I mean, SRC election across all our tertiary institutions. And uh, further than that, when I left, after graduating, I said, I want to build structures in, you know, different areas. And as we speak, if you go to DA events, you'll see that we fill buses, which we never had before. So there was a moment which I had an opportunity to make a meaningful contribution changing the party ways of doing things uh, from the constitution selection panel processes building capacity to candidates so there's a lot of things which I have done to make sure that we change the party to change uh, I mean to I mean reposition itself and take a different direction including looking at you know preparing ourselves to govern you know very uh, played a, I mean instrumental role identifying individual candidates making sure that we prepare ourselves so there are a number of roles which i've played for me i played them without necessarily occupying a particular Mm -hmm. position Obviously, if you occupy a position, it also becomes much easier. When you put certain ideas in place, it becomes much easier to right. enforce or implement. Yet, yet, something, is yet, really something has,
0: yet something has changed in those 25 years. In fact, you're quoted as saying the Democratic Alliance is a dead party. What does that mean and, and what has altered your perspective?
4: The focus has changed. For example, you know when we're going to the registration weekend last year, uh, We're all advised that the priority focus are all the wards where the DA has got 50% of votes in 2021. Uh, other areas where we got less than 50% are not priority, so we should not bother. There's not much I mean needed from us. I I mean was a political head in an area where you know we building the organisation to gain support from zero based support and we felt like that's the direction the party must take because when you talk about building new majority for me it means that you must go to areas where you never existed before and that journey has started as you can see the type of activists who are more prepared to come and work voluntarily to assist the DA to grow but the moment you start saying that is no longer going to be the case it also have uh, implications when it comes to decision making process for example The DA uses the votes as a way to determine decision-making representation. Like for you to serve in federal council, there's a portion which is determined by how many votes you got from your region, how many votes you got from your province. Then you get allocation in terms of uh, number of delegates who will serve there. When you go to your conferences, you look at 50 percent.
0: All of this this is process and procedure, but that doesn't necessarily explain your description of the party as being dead.
4: It does in the sense that you are simply saying that these people who are supposed to be going out there and assist the party to grow, uh, there's no need for them anymore. That is the implication of what actually this is saying. I mean, you say you yeah, are taking that all the resources which you have. and saying no, these resources must be put aside. They will only be going to fifty percent rich areas. So those other areas where you know you are starting to show that you are growing or you have grown and uh, dropped are not necessarily priority. Like you know your Eldorado Park, mm-hmm. your Indonesia. These are the wards or areas where in 2016 we have done very well, but 2019 and 2021 we dropped. But now. I know. Uh, I mean, when I was still involved, I said we need to prioritize the words based on different strengths and capacity. We used to classify them and say these are your marginal words. And you're saying, and you're these saying, and you're saying no one years.
0: was. Li- you're saying no one was listening to you.
4: They were. There was no. I'm saying uh, before. That's why we managed to get into that market.
0: But now they're not. That's why we. Ma- now they're saying,
4: no, this is not the direction we're taking. All right. You also say and that the I'm DA sure needs a leader
0: with integrity and credibility in counting. What is lacking with the current leader and integrity and credibility?
4: So I made a reference and I said, this is what our principles and values are saying. And I said, when we have individuals, especially from the ANC, who are alleged uh, of mismanagement or corruption, uh, we're very quick to say we're going to open case against them they must be suspended, they must be charged, uh, which is due process which you all need to adhere to. But when it's one of our own, we turn a blind eye. I cited an example and say we've got the the leader in the province, Solim Simang, who was involved in allegations of about 12 billion plus uh, regarding Gled Africa tender when he was a mayor in Tswane. The DA kept quiet, never even raised anything about it, despite the fact that there were issues raised and referred to them to say can you look at this matter then there was also a video which went viral where he was i mean bleeding also an exchange of words saying i need my money you owe me still when you're a leader of integrity you also need to examine that and say what is going on here is this not bringing the name of the party into disrepute so i'm saying those type of cases when it involves one of our own you know we no longer talk about uh, you know those principles but when it's somewhere else we all jump so those are some of the things which i was raising and say when we are part of principles it must not be looking at whether it's jeremy or it's kume if it's a principle it must be a principled issue and we must i I mean approach it in that way
0: i have run out of time but thank you very much for the explanation Kume ramolifo i appreciate your time you're listening to money web at midday And let's finish the program with this. Apple has surpassed Amazon to claim the title of the world's most valuable brand. It's worth around 516 billion U.S. dollars. Every year, the brand valuation consultancy Brand Finance puts 5,000 of the biggest brands to the test, the world's Top 500 most valuable and strongest global brands are included in the annual Brand Finance Global 500 2024 ranking. Jeremy Sampson is Brand Finance's local representative. So, Jeremy, is Apple's success a surprise given that its prime product, iPhone's volume share, has largely plateaued?
5: Hello, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Not really, because you'll see that under Tim Cook as CEO... It's moved into other areas. After all, it actually uh, sells more watches, if I can call them watches, than anyone else. It's added on other things. And even though everyone says Apple is expensive, everyone loves it so much, they're prepared to pay a considerable premium for anything that's got the Apple brand on. So well done to the marketing team there. Um, you know, people have been talking about the death of Apple for years and years and years. I think I first had an Apple computer on my desk back in the mid-1980s, and here they are still stronger than ever.
0: I imagine that computer, Jeremy, is probably worth a little bit of money now. Why has Amazon lost its position?
5: Amazon hasn't been as creative. Um, It's still incredibly solid. Now, when you actually look at the rankings, Microsoft is two, Google three, and Amazon four. And all three of them are incredibly close together. So they're really jockeying for position. Once you get into fifth place, Samsung, you're dropping down quite dramatically. But those are the the top four. Amazon, uh, up to Google, up to Microsoft, and up to Apple. And where will it be next year? You know, we already know that this year, the market cap of uh, Microsoft has got on top of Apple for the first time, and they are the two biggest companies on any stock exchange.
0: If you and I had had this conversation two years ago, maybe even a year ago, and we'd mentioned the brand NVIDIA, um, I don't think either of us would have known what we were talking about. Yet here's a brand that's value is up 163%. What's all that about?
5: Well, you're quite right. Uh, And this is where just seeing the commentary coming in from Davos at the World Economic Forum, everything this year apparently is about AI and NVIDIA is leading the charge there. Uh, And this is where we're actually seeing uh, a revolution. Everyone's saying when the internet came in, whoa, that was something. Well, now we've got AI, and that's going to change everything. I think some people are very scared of it. Some people aren't quite sure, but the negatives and the positives. And NVIDIA is doing an incredible job, and it's going to be very, very exciting to see how it all evolves and helps us, hopefully, to become more clever and more astute.
0: Deutsche Telekom is the world's most valuable telecoms brand. No sign of uh, any South African entrance,
5: though? None at all. And, you know, this is obviously concerning. Africa's most valuable brand is MTN and remains in that position. Uh, We'll be coming out with the South African rankings early in April. But the fact of the matter is that um, being in Africa, you have problems. You know, talking to a colleague in London, in fact, yesterday, I said, give me a soundbite. What's the difference? And he said, well, if you have a house in Johannesburg and you took it to London, think how it would change. In other words, if you have a house in northern Johannesburg worth about five million rands, that would, if you put it into a similar place in London, be worth about one million pounds. And I'm talking broadly. But one million pounds equals 24 million rands. And this is where we have to put up with risk factors, depreciation of currency, no government support for brands like especially the chinese are putting into bid their electronic car and there's a a lack of scale here we have lots of fragmentation so i don't see any african brands sadly getting into the top 500 anytime soon
0: Jeremy Sampson, thank you very much indeed. And as we end the program, other stories on our radar. The Independent Electoral Commission has allocated 5 million rand to political parties represented in Parliament, obviously ahead of this year's election. And News 24 is reporting that the port of Maputo has increased volume by 16% to record 31 million tonnes as more exporters seek alternatives to South Africa's Durban and Richards Bay ports. That's where we'll leave. It's MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at Midday or download episodes on MoneyWeb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb news on social media for more updates.
2: MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.